Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. I'm your host, Etienne. Today, we have the pleasure of sharing with you an interview with Sally Westaway and Joe Smith. Both of them worked until recently at the Organic Research Center in the UK and have done research on two farms that we have already featured on the podcast, Wakelands and Tolhurst Organics. It's great to get a slightly different perspective on agroforestry and understand what scientific research on the topic looks like. Sally and Joe do a great job at bringing some nuance to the conversation on topics such as productivity or diversity of agroforestry systems, and they do so in very practical terms. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Sally. Hi, Joe. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Etienne. Nice to be here. I was thinking we could start with a brief introduction of who you are, um, a bit about how you got interested in agroforestry. Uh, maybe Sally, you want to start? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so I'm Sally Westaway. Um, I worked at the Organic Research Centre for about um, seven years in total um, as an agroforestry researcher. Um, and I came from a bit of a diverse background, sort of a bit of plant ecology and a bit of organic um, horticulture. Um, so growing vegetables organically. Um, and they sort of came together really in agroforestry, the, the sort of woodland ecology that I was working on and the organic horticulture. Um, and my first project was looking at hedges and how to incorporate hedges into a farming system. Um, and then I moved on from there to work on various different aspects of agroforestry. Um, I've now actually left the Organic Research Centre and I'm back in horticulture. Hi everyone. Yeah, so I'm Joe Smith. Um, I also worked at the Organic Research Centre, worked closely with Sally. Um, and I was there for 10 years, uh, coming from a PhD investigating agro-environment scheme. Um, options and their effects on um, earthworms and other soil organisms. But I always had an interest in organic farming and um, organic systems and agroforestry just seemed kind of like the pinnacle of agroecological methods um, because it could kind of deliver productivity whilst at the same time kind of helping with protection of the environment. So I was there for 10 years. Uh, with Sally we built up the agroforestry research project uh, program and worked closely with farmers um, who were kind of pioneering in terms of um, developing agroforestry in the UK. Well, yeah, it, it actually, um, we decided to interview you as well as a kind of uh, following up on the episodes we did, did with uh, Ian Tolhurst and, um, uh, and David from um, uh, Wakelands Farm. And it was really interesting. We got their kind of practical farm manager uh, take on things, and we thought it would be great to have a bit more about um, the scientific data, uh, because both of them actually mentioned their um, their collaboration with the Organic Research Center. Um, maybe you want to give us a bit of an overview on of your work on both of these farms. Sure. Um, yeah. So, well, from the very start um, of my time at ORC, I worked very closely with Martin Wolf, um, who set up Wakelands Agroforestry. Uh, 20, well, over 25 years ago now, um, and he also worked at the Organic Research Centre um, as a scientific advisor. Um, so we did several projects up there. Um, it's a really great system. It's probably unique um, in terms of diversity 
um, and also maturity. There's not many um, agroforestry systems um, in the UK to, to work with, to choose from. Um, in terms of working with Tolly, um, well, the Organic Research Centre had worked with Tolly on various projects for, for a long time. Um, he's a, a key figure in, um, at the Organic Research Centre. But he was also very interested um, in wood. He loves timber. He, he built, built a timber boat. Um, and he was very keen to have trees uh, within his vegetable growing system. And so we worked with him and also with the Woodland Trust to set up an agroforestry system there, um, integrating the vegetable growing with trees. Yeah, and and I sort of I sort of um, dovetailed, I guess, a bit on on some of the work that Joe was involved in, which was more in the planted agroforestry systems and looking at the um, sort of management of the existing trees on the farms and the hedges. Um, and trying to find ways to make those economic for the farmer um, and bring them back into the farming system. Um, and we did that work. We did some work on that at both Wakelands and at Tollhurst, as well as other other different farms. And I think Tolly has probably mentioned in his um, podcast a bit about the wood chip work that we did there as well, looking at the Ramia wood chip. Yeah, he did, actually. And that gives us uh, so much to, to talk about today. One of the first uh, themes I wanted to kind of discuss with you today um, is the one of interactions between uh, crops in the agroforestry systems. Um, as we integrate different crops, you know, many farmers have concerns of maybe competition between your main crop and the trees that you're going to plant. Uh, but also on the other side, often, you know, agroforestry is promoted for its ecosystem services um, and helping uh, the production of the main crop. So I was thinking that maybe through your, um, your research, maybe you had come across this theme and researched it. And, you know, obviously here the, the aim isn't to go for massive generalizations about um, agroforestry, but I was just curious to see uh, if you had done some in-depth research on some of these interactions. Yeah, we've, we've had several projects um, looking at this um, because obviously it is of real importance to farmers. And, uh, you know, the, the classic edge effect is you see that around most fields uh, whereby, you know, yields are lower at the edge and it can be for a whole number of reasons, including shade, um, you know, kind of rabbits coming out and nibbling the crops. And, and uh, so it's quite hard to disentangle all of those effects. Um, but we did some nice work uh, in my early years um, working with Martin and it was in the, the mixed timber and apple tree system. So. It's a system whereby there's seven different species of trees um, and also apple trees, and they're all mixed in together. Um, and the trees are, um, are managed for timber, so they're big, big trees, tall trees. And Martin had noticed that the, um, the crops um, adjacent to the Italian older uh, seem to be taller than kind of adjacent to the other trees. And he was wondering whether that translated into any differences in, in crop yields. And so one summer, we went out with the plot combine and harvested um, five meter length strips of the, the cereals um, adjacent to the different tree species and measured crop yields. Um, we were looking at spring wheat, uh, winter wheat and oats. Um, what we, well, we didn't find any effect of tree species on crop yields, but what we found was at the edge of the, the, um, the alleys, the crop alleys, which were about 10 to 12 meter wide, um, we saw a decline in, in crop yield, which we kind of expected um, compared to the centre of the alleys. Um, what was quite interesting was that for, for the two wheats, for the spring wheat and the winter wheats, the yields at the edge of the alley were about half what they were in the centre, 
But for the oats, that decline in yield was only 25%. So um, it just seems that oats is a kind of more competitive species compared to uh, the wheat. And so it's something that, you know, farms can bear in mind that there might be cereals, there might be crops that are better suited for those kind of more shady conditions. Um, and actually, there's some research going on um, in, in France, uh, INRA, and also in, in Spain at the University of Extremadura, looking at that idea of kind of developing crop varieties which are more suitable for those shady conditions in agroforestry. And uh, so there's differences between different types of crops. Uh, did you also test different uh, varieties of the same crop, like different oats or different wheats? Um, not, not in, not in that experiment. No, we did okay. um, probably. Well, it was, it was quite a complicated one, but we did look at different um, different varieties, um, but nothing, nothing really to pull out um, in terms of differences. And at work in the work we did at Wakelands, anyway. Um, but some of the other work we did at Wakelands was in the short rotation coppice systems. Um, and there's two systems at Wakelands. So one is a willow short rotation coppice and the other is hazel. And they're both coppiced um, to provide wood chip, primarily to go into wood chip boiler to heat the farmhouse. Um, but the willow is harvested on a two year rotation and the hazel is harvested on a five year rotation. And uh, we did some serial trials in the willow and what we found was where the willow had been coppiced that year, so it was kind of a more open, sunny environment. Um, it just meant that the crops did better than adjacent to where the willow hadn't been harvested and, and was kind of two years old and creating more shade. Um, so again, that kind of opens up another option for farmers that they can kind of match the, the crop with the, the point in the rotation of the tree. Um, so you yep. know, those, those crops which need the, the kind of more open conditions could be grown after the, the trees have just been harvested, um, whereas those perhaps which are okay in more shady conditions can be grown later in the, in the tree harvest rotation. So obviously in the second experiment, uh, shade is what you know, was the variable. Um, I don't know if you actually had a scientific conclusion, but um, maybe as a supposition, if, if it's not the case, uh, in the case of oats, is it that they were more um, shade tolerant or was it on an other aspect do you think that they did better? Mm, really hard to say because um, yeah. it, it, you know, it's not necessarily just the shade or, or the lack mm. of shade where, where the tree's been um, coppiced because obviously, it, you know, the, there's there's so many interactions with water, with what's going on below ground, you know, whether the roots are growing back, uh, growing, have died back after you've cut, um, cut the trees above ground. Um, so we, you know, you can't, well, we didn't attempt to pull apart those different interactions. And so, um, Maybe, you know, not from directly from your experiment, but um, I'm guessing maybe from your knowledge and in, in more of the um, agroforestry literature, uh, the main, do you think the main competitions are in terms of water, then in terms of roots and fertility? Yeah, I mean, in Northern Europe, I would say shade was probably the biggest, um, biggest issue. Um, yeah. But, you know, we did kind of see evidence that um, things change from year to year, depending on rainfall and um, timing of rain as well. So um, when we looked at kind of microclimate um, differences between the agroforestry and the open field, which was right next door, we found kind of higher soil moisture in, in the agroforestry. Um, and that's probably related to wind speeds. We found higher wind speeds in the open field. And so obviously, the, you know, more wind would dry out the soil um, in the open fields. And so, it, 
you know, there's kind of all those interactions um, which are, yeah, quite difficult to um, to generalise about because year on year you've got differences in the, in the, in the climate. And also, I guess the trees are growing. Um, so every year is different. The tree is different every year. It's not an yeah. annual crop where you're growing the same same sort of similar crop every year, but it's a tree that's that's changing and growing um, over time. But it's, um, it's fascinating because there's so complex and there's so many variables and I imagine... Um, it must be so hard to to really get to like uh, um, rigorous conclusions about these things because what I feel often is you know there's a lot of uh, big claims that are being circulated and you know on agroforestry in general and we probably you know contribute to that to a certain extent but once you start you know having uh, scientifically rigorous conversations it's so hard to make these claims isn't it? Yeah, it really is and. You know, both at Wakelands and at Tollies, they're working farms. You know, they're not, they weren't set up as scientific experiments in terms of having replicates and controls and, you know, tightly, tightly um, controlled systems. Um, so, you know, there's also kind of the interaction with different management practices going on and they can even change from year to year. Um, you know, they might want to plough at a certain time, but because um, they've been busy elsewhere, it gets delayed and, and so on. So. Um, but it's real life, and I guess that's a, you know that's the beauty of working um, in real systems and, and working with farmers. It's you know making sure things work in real life rather than under those kind of tightly controlled systems. But it's already very interesting that you're able to kind of study the the coppice system and, and demonstrate that positive impact, because um, I guess that's a really useful tool for a lot of farmers. It's such a, a efficient way of managing biomass and pruning. And that looks like it's a really promising avenue for, um, you know, synchronizing that with different crop rotations. Yeah, definitely. I, I think the copper system is works really well in agroforestry systems because you can manage the tree canopy a lot, a lot better. Um, and in terms of timing, I mean, the, the willow is harvested every two years, whereas the hazel is every five years. Um, and you know, that gives you different options, again, in terms of management and how you work your rotations in between. Um, I mean, at Waitlands, the alleys are quite narrow. They're 10 to 12 metres, um, whereas most silver arable systems we see now are more like 24. And so I think, you know, those shade effects probably, you know, not so important in these in these kind of wider alleys because um, the trees don't ever really get that, that high. You know, they're kind of two to three metres high maximum. Is there anything else you'd like to say about interactions sorry if i'm i'm trying really hard to not ask too generalist questions and and make a fool out of myself but please feel free to i don't know to add anything or correct me if if uh yeah um i think just kind of coming back to the microclimate um and this idea of having kind of um lower soil moisture in the in the open field i mean one thing that did come up um is that actually that I mean, the, the guys who work at Wakelands, Paul and Mark, who work on the land, they found kind of one of the downsides of the, the higher soil moisture in the agroforestry system is that they couldn't get onto the land at the right time because it took longer to dry out. Um, you know, it's lower wind speeds in the agroforestry and the soil kind of stayed wetter for longer earlier in the year. Um, so that's kind of one of the kind of negative effects, I guess, is, is um, you know, it holds the water longer than an open field. But did they also kind of, was there a positive effect as well of, of having long moisture for longer in the summer as well? Or was yeah, it just negative? I mean, yeah, the positive effect, I guess, was um, seen in the, 
well, when we were looking at it, it was um, looking at the fertility building lay. Um, so, you know, there was kind of higher productivity in the agroforestry because the moisture was in, in the system longer. And so that would be kind of the positive effect. Um, but I think, you know, it's not always positive. There's there's sometimes um, kind of negative implications of, of the differences in the microclimate. Mm, that's fascinating. Yeah, I never thought about of, of too much moisture as a potential problem for uh, entering with machines. Really interesting. Um, Sally, is there anything you want to add on this topic? Uh, no, I think Joe's just about covered most of that. I mean, yeah, it's it's complicated and pulling it apart is difficult. Um, and um, I guess that's 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 where we need more research is over time, over a, a significant amount of time as well, where you're following the system through and looking at, at how things um, change as time goes on. There was um, something that Martin kind of triggered um, in the last few years was um, trying to manage the shade in the timber tree system, so the big trees. Um, and he was fascinated by this idea of pollarding, wasn't he, Sally? And, and trying to kind of maintain the trees in the kind of peak productivity stage, um, whilst also kind of managing the, the shading from the canopy. So he started yeah. pollarding um, some of the trees in that mixed system. Um, yeah, we didn't manage to collect much data on them, did we? But um, we didn't. It would be interesting to look at that. Definitely. Exactly, and I think that's maybe a, a really um, promising area for research going forward. Is because yeah. um, you know a lot of trees used to be pollarded in the UK. Um, you know, very much working trees. Um, but we've kind of lost that tradition. I know in areas of France, you know, almost every tree you see is pollarded or managed yeah. to a certain extent. And, um, you know, we just don't see it in the UK other than kind of for their cultural values. You know, you see these trees that were pollard pollarded in the past and recognised for their biodiversity value and their, their cultural value. Um, and I guess it's just, it's not easy to build it into a kind of working farm anymore in terms of having the machinery to do it and not relying on kind of people going out there with a chainsaw and, and you know, it's being very manual. So I think that, you know, maybe that's one one avenue for, for research um, and it's a way that farmers can manage the shade in those kind of big tree systems. Yeah, definitely. Um, but since we're on the topic of future research, um, because it's so complex and the interactions are so hard to pinpoint, you know, to one element, uh, how do you see the future of research? Do you think it's kind of a, that that's not, you know, it's pointless to try and demonstrate these positive interactions or do you see ways where you can have that data because you'll always be doing that on farms that are not designed for experiments and you'll always be faced with the constraints we just discussed. I don't know. I know not at all. I think, um, I think mm. we need to just build up the evidence base. You need this sort of big data approach where, um, where data is coming from various different places and you can feed it all in and then you can, um, you can, um, you can extrapolate from that. And there's a lot of, um, modeling around agroforestry, um, which, um, Joe, Joe may say more about than me, but I think a lot of the time that those models are quite data poor. So if we can increase the quality of the data going into those models, then we can increase the sort of like quality of the data that's available to farmers to predict what might happen if they put trees on their land. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of modelling that um, the INRA team led by Christian Dupraz uh, in Mont Montpellier. I mean, they've been working on the high safe model for a long time now, and it is looking at those really um, detailed interactions um, between the trees and the crops. And they've also done great work down there um, below ground, um, you know, digging big big pits to see what's happening with the roots um, and yeah, kind of measuring the trees as they grow. And so, 
those kind of experimental platforms where you've got the, the replicates and you've got these um, these trees that have been monitored now for you know 20 years or so that, that's you know that's all building up the evidence um, I guess it is then just seeing how it works in real life on real farms which is um, the interesting part as well I think as interest increases and more people are planting as well you, you're, you're getting more opportunities to collect data as well um, and more opportunities to sort of like have um, stuff uh, information that's for wider relevance so it's not just based on one or two farms but just on farms across a wider geographic area I think we're, we're really missing financial data as well, which is the other sort of key um, bit of information that I guess a lot of farmers want to know about when they're thinking about setting up an, uh, an agroforestry system is how much it's going to cost them and how much they're potentially going to get back. Um, so that's that's another thing I think where, where it would be good to have more information um, and collect that in a little bit more of a strategic manner as well. That's definitely something we, we felt with Dimitri uh, when we started working on agroforestry. And one of the reasons for um, starting the podcast, although it's never so easy in a podcast format to be really, you know, having a rigorous, um, you know, collection of numbers and, and really getting to the bottom of things. But I'd agree with you that um, from a kind of farmer perspective, that would be really helpful. Um, okay, thanks for that. Um, really interesting to understand that basically... We can kind of overcome these complexities of the of the living world by having, you know, enough farms and data and collecting the clues little by little. And that sounds really interesting and looking forward to that. One of the other big, big themes, I think, um, that often comes with um, discussing agroforestry and that, you know, also came in our episodes with um, Wakelands and Tallest Organics is this idea of diversity. Um, you know, some advantages are said to come with diversifying productions, but we also know that there's some practical constraints with having diversified productions. Um, and I was wondering if uh, you had, in, in your research, uh, studied a bit of the impact of diversity, whether it be you know biodiversity or or just diversifying productions on the on the farm production. I mean, Wakelands obviously is is probably one of the diverse most diverse systems out there. Um, we did some nice work. Um, as part of a European project looking at apple production, um, specifically organic apple production, and the aim was trying to reduce copper, which is used as a um, to reduce um, scab. And the project we, we well the work that we did and how it fed into it was um, can we use an agroforestry approach to grow apples that don't need so much copper to um, to control scab uh, levels. And um, in this mixed timber and apple tree system at Wakelands, um, we were basically comparing that system with an organic orchard nearby and looking at the levels of scab. And it's something that Martin said, which has always stuck with me. It's like the, um, the worst place to grow apples is in an orchard um, because you have all these problems with, um, with pests and diseases. And so he was growing his apples in mixed in amongst these timber timber trees. Um, so what you do is you get a pair of apple trees and then you get pairs of seven other timber species and then you'd get your next pair of apple trees. And I think he had, I think there was probably about 20 odd different varieties as well. So they're all mixed in together um, and we were comparing levels of scab on this kind of really diverse system compared to an organic orchard. And we found actually that the, the levels of scab in the agroforestry were less than half what they were in the orchard. And there's, again, there's probably a few different reasons why that might be, but I think key to that was the diversity. 
Um, so you've got you know lots of different species as well as you've got your apples in there. So you know you've got your apple trees which are separated um, from the next apple trees by you know ten different trees in between. So they're kind of sprinkled throughout the system, and then you've got your different varieties as well, some of which were more susceptible to scab than others. So it's you know it's a case of don't put all your eggs in one basket, don't put all your apples in one basket when it comes to choosing your varieties and choosing your different species. You're saying that um, that diversity works both uh, by choosing a diversity of varieties of apples and also then including them in a variety of trees then, like this double layer. Exactly. So the, the different species of trees are, are, are like a barrier, you know, both a physical one and you know, having the different species. Um, so they wouldn't be spreading the scab from tree to tree, which is what you'd often get in, in orchards. Um, but then, you know, with with the different varieties, you know, one one year you might get one variety which seems to get hit quite hard and next year it might be a different variety. Um, but because you didn't have kind of blocks of single varieties and you had so many different varieties mixed together, that spread of scab was um, much lower. Wow. Well, it's great to, you know, it's the assumption, isn't it, when we when we defend diversity and, and plant diversity, but it's, it's good to know that it actually works. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the I suppose the other side of that is um, how practical is that if you're trying to scale it up? Um, I mean, it worked well at Wakelands because, um, you know, the, the apples can feed into uh, veg box systems and it's something that Tolly's also doing. He's growing apples as well as part of his mix. Um, and he's obviously got the veg box system there and he's got the, um, the, the, the little um, shop there as well. So, you know, you can you can also tell the story behind why you've got all these different varieties. But then if you're trying to sell to wholesale or you're trying to scale it up, you know, you need more of the same variety to make it worthwhile. Um, the other option, uh, the other issue, obviously, is when you come to, to harvest, you know, they're coming to, um, they're, they're ripe at different times or they're ready to harvest at different times. So, you know, that, that then means you're harvesting over a longer period than if you had may, maybe only two or three varieties. So, you know, there are management implications of having that diversity. And I think it's kind of choosing, you know, choosing what's best for the system, I guess, um, in terms of how you go about harvesting and what you do with those as an end product. Um, so I don't know if you've heard of Stephen Briggs and his his Apple agroforestry system um, in yeah. the UK. We actually had him on the podcast a few episodes ago, so we're kind of we're just uh, you know drilling into a whole network of English agroforestry farmers. <laughs> um, so you know he he was inspired by by Wakelands, um, but he went with apples as his you know his his tree crop. Um, He's got different varieties there as well, which is really nice. Um, but he's planted them in blocks, and so they're easier to harvest. Um, he's got obviously a lot more apple trees, and so he's got the bulk as well. Um, so he's kind of taken parts, taken inspiration from Wakelands, but scaled it up um, to a, a different system, but one that perhaps works better at that larger scale. Sure. I think um, there's a theme we always come back to with Dimitri because it was something that we are really faced to on the ground is always balancing, you know, practical management and diversity. And I don't know, uh, you were talking about varieties, but I think there's a lot of work to see how, you know, um, we can introduce a varieties of trees without really um, complexifying too much uh, the mm -hmm. operation and maybe having like smaller blocks with hedges and kind of managing to bring in like a diversity of trees, but not maybe in the tree line, but like smaller mm -hmm. hedges around. I mean, there's a lot of, discussions around that and there's a lot to to innovate and 
um, yeah, it's, it's a really exciting and vital question, I think. That you have to think about um, growth rate of the trees as well. If you're managing for coppice products and you plant a diverse mix, which we did on, on the farm that, where we were based, you plant a diverse mix of, of tree species for your coppice production. Um, if some of them grow at different rates to the others, then you have a problem when it comes to harvesting around practical, practicalities. We, we planted willow, which shot away. Um, and then you have yeah. to sort of pick your way through the willow and harvest them um, separately and you can't mechanize it as easily as well. Mm. Yeah. So do you think the best would be to just have like a row of single species, but then maybe alternating these rows um, to have that diversity across the rows? Yeah, I mean, we're thinking about this at the minute on the, the market garden where I work, where we have high winds, um, we're planting shelter belts, but we want to keep the shelter belts diverse, but we don't want to make management um, problems for ourselves in the future. So, yeah, keeping single rows of single species, but then having multiple species within like within the row um, is how we're approaching it. Um, okay. I suppose having kind of different teams of, of similar species and just thinking, I mean, the willow, you know, you could have different species of willow, um, assuming that they would all grow at a similar rate and, you know, then mix up the other species which grow at a, a different rate. Um, perhaps trying to be a bit, bit cleverer with um, kind of teams of different species. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, because the diversity is definitely linked to resilience as well, isn't it? Because if you get if you just plant one species and then you get a disease come in, um, that wipes them out and you haven't got anything else to back up. So. No, I was just, I mean, talking about diversity, I mean, we did also do some work on biodiversity um, at Wakelands and um, again, kind of comparing it, comparing Wakelands agroforestry with the organic orchard. And I mean, things are never straightforward, I think, when, when we when we start looking in detail. Um, so it was quite a mixed picture, picture in terms of the effect on um, pollinators and and natural enemies, and we found kind of higher higher wasps, high, high abundances of parasitic and predator wasps um, at Wakelands, um, but actually higher numbers of bees in the orchard. Um, and actually, when you start to think about it, you know, at the orchard there's a lot more apple trees compared to Wakelands. There's a lot more flowering resource both in the apple trees and and in the understory, which was Kind of, um, it was a, a grassy flower sward underneath the trees compared to Wakelands, which has um, obviously got your trees, but then you had cereals growing in the alleys. So, you know, there's more kind of bees and stuff in the orchard compared to Wakelands. But then when we looked within Wakelands, um, comparing, um, it was actually a PhD project comparing um, bumblebees, solitary bees, and hoverflies between the short rotation coppice willow system and the neighbouring open field, there are more um, insects in the agroforestry. So it's kind of, you know, a lot of that is what are you comparing? Are you comparing yeah. agroforestry to an open field? Or are you comparing it to a um, the, the kind of tree control, the orchard? Um, yeah. So yeah, somewhere in between. And yeah, there was a really nice study. Um, it was the RSPB. So the, um, the, bird, the bird people came and did some um, recording at, at Wakelands and I think they recorded kind of 40 odd species but what they found was it's a real mixture of different um, categories of birds so they, they had the kind of typical farmland birds there but they also had birds which were characteristic of woodlands as well and so you know that in terms of the habitats that the agroforestry provided it it seems to be offering things to both woodland species and to those kind of farmland birds as well. Mm -hmm. I was going to say we looked at um plant species as well at, at 
colleagues over, over a number of years in his agroforestry system. And actually, when you, when you picked into the detail of the um, species data that you were collecting there, there was a high number of species overall, but the long-term beetle bank, which was present before the trees were planted, actually had the highest diversity of any of the um, uh, understory habitats. So you were getting that high diversity with the beetle bank without the trees at all. Um, so. You mean before they planted any trees, they still left a strip with just flowers or what were, what were they comparing to? Yeah, so a beetle bank, it's sort of um, a strip of perennial grasses and flowers um, for beetles, okay, yeah. which is, it doesn't contain any trees, uh, but it's okay. a, a habitat strip for, um, for various different reasons. People, plant, farmers will plant them. But the trees were planted into um, the beetle bank. One of the rows of trees that, that he planted as his agroforestry system was planted into the beetle bank, and the other ones were planted into various different um, rows. So they, they sowed some um, wildflower mix under one row, I think, and some cut flowers and some rhubarb um, oh, yeah. and various other crops underneath them. But in amongst that, there was other species as well. And we monitored the sort of species diversity going forward at the beginning when the trees were planted and then going forward as well. Um, and the long-term beetle bank had the highest diversity overall. Um, I think yeah. and it, it maintained that as well. Um, and then we saw so some of the sown species as well, some of the legumes that were sown, um, the fertility-building legumes um, got outcompeted over time as well, and, and the numbers of those reduced as well. Um, but the beetle bank yeah, stayed, stayed quite high. So I guess that's you have to be a bit careful about what you're attributing your benefit to, because it wasn't really the trees necessarily, because the beetle bank was quite diverse in the first place. So could say that the, the you could lump them all together and say that diversity was high under the trees but then if you pick it apart and look at the beetle bank you've actually got the high diversity in the beetle bank itself without the trees there at all does that does that make sense that makes a lot of sense yeah really interesting and um yeah another example of how nuanced we have to be about you know correlating unproblematically agroforestry and, and biodiversity um going back to what you were saying joe i guess um in of itself, it's interesting that there's an increase in diversity of birds. And uh, I think, I don't know if there's any research on that, but I guess the, the other question afterwards, it'd be really interesting to see the impact of that higher diversity on production, maybe on reducing pest pressures. And um, hopefully that's, that's also research that's going to go forward and that'll be really interesting. No, I mean, I think I, I, we don't have any research on it specifically, yeah. um, but just a general diversification of farm incomes, I think, is important to mention as well. So it's not just about biodiversity, but it's about diversity of um, diversification of the systems. Um, and I guess some of some of the work that we did on on looking at um, looking at whether you can be self-sufficient in fuel and fertility um, from your own trees um, feeds into that. You've got another resource coming out of your system that you can use. Um, to increase the resilience overall and it could be that you're you know you're not harvesting that product every year um but it's there in times of need if you see what i mean so one thing yeah. i'm thinking about is tree fodder um yeah. and you know you've got trees in the environment um, you've got livestock and actually it's in those years the really dry years when the, the grass is really not performing um, but your trees are still green um, and that they might be the years that you're relying on your trees to provide feed for your animals another another interesting um an interesting topic is productivity and whether agroforestry systems are more productive or not and uh, i know i read a bit in your research uh, that you were measuring ler um and wakelands i think at least 
And it'd be great if you could explain to us a bit, um, you know, what it is and how you go about measuring it and some of the findings uh, on that topic. Um, yeah, sure. Um, so I guess LER is, is sort of useful. It's useful in giving you that sort of overall overview of how productive your system could be in theory. Um, it compares the, um, basically compares the productivity of um, the two different crops. It doesn't have to be an agroforestry system. It could be an intercropping system as well, but of two different crops grown together against the productivity of them if they were grown in two separate fields. So sort of as monocultures, I guess. Um, and it gives you a value. I mean, the calculation is, is the yield from, from one crop divided by the yield from the, the monoculture of that crop, the, the yield of the intercrop divided by the yield of the monoculture, plus the yield of the second crop um, when it's grown as an intercrop divided by the yield of the monoculture. You might want to cut that bit out. That's a bit confusing. But basically, it gives you, it gives you a figure. Um, and if it's, if it's greater than one, um, then your intercrop is more productive than your um, equivalent crops would be grown um, separately. Um, it's the thing that I think is slightly misleading about it is that it depends on what you use as an input figure. So you can, and a lot of the work that we did at Wakelands, we used an, an overall biomass figure. So you're comparing your biomass of, for example, your lay, um, so a lay cut um, in the alley and the biomass of the willow, which is the agroforestry crop, um, with the biomass of the willow sep grown separately as a monoculture or the lay grown separately as a monoculture. But biomass of, of willow is, is not necessarily equivalent to the biomass of the um, pasture crop. So when you put them together, you'll end up with a, a positive result. Um, or we did end up with a positive result. Um, and the LERs at, at Wakelands calculated in a variety of different ways were all positive, which is great. Um, but I suppose to make it um, more useful, you'd maybe look at energetic value, which I think we did in, in one case when we were looking at LERs at Wakelands, or possibly even your um, value, so the value of the crop. So the value in terms of um, economic um, return, I guess, on the crop, because your willow wood chip won't be equivalent to a, a kilo of willow wood chip won't be equivalent to a kilo of um, wheat grain, for example. So your biomass is not very comparable. So it's, it's a useful measure, but I think you have to be a bit careful about how you interpret the results, I suppose, is what I'm saying. And then make sure that the data that you're feeding into it is relevant as well. Okay, yeah. Now, that's an interesting point, actually, of fi finding that common denominator. But I guess it's the, the tricky bit with the economic value would then be that there's so many variables on how you yeah. can commercialise that apple. Or, um, oh, completely. Oh, completely. It's just, I suppose I, I feel a little bit when you, when you sort of say, well, LERs of one point, all, all greater than one, you've got um, agroforestry systems that are more productive. Um, but then, it, like I said, it, it depends on, on what that production is and how useful that production is. Because if that production doesn't um, actually translate into a useful product or a product that, that can be sold by the farmer, for example, then it doesn't or can be used by the farmer, it doesn't necessarily mean that the system overall is 10% more productive or 20% or 40% more productive. The system at Wakelands with the short rotation coppers is, is kind of a good example of that, whereby, like Sally says, it had a positive LER, um, but actually in terms of value, if you sell wood chip, it has, you know, it's very low value compared to selling the cereal crop. Um, but because the, the wood chip was actually used on farm to replace heating oil, so you know, there was no need to buy in heating oil, 
it actually makes the economics st stack up much more favorably. So you're saving a lot of money by not spending on heating oil and using homegrown wood chip as well. And that kind of balanced out the, the kind of loss of, of cereal. And the LER was calculated at Wakelands um, using a, a tool called the public goods tool as well, um, which looks at the entire farm system. And it's quite a basic calculation. Um, but the positive LER for that, I think, was more indicative of overall um, production because the actual um, the units that went into that were metabolizable energy. Um, so you're looking at the energy that's coming out of the products and you're looking at everything. So the whole system, so all of the different agroforestry systems and all of the products coming off the farm as well. Um, so I, I guess, yeah, um, that's maybe a little bit more... Um, representative of what's going on but then because it's looking at the whole system and it's only looking at one year and a snapshot um there's problems with yeah. that as well I mean, we, we looked at the ler of the um the willow system over two years and in one year it was 1.4 and the following year it's 1.1 um and again that was kind of yeah. impacted by the weather and so it just shows you that yeah from year to year they, you can have that variation and what would be nice is to look at it over the whole period of the tree rotation so 20 years you know 20 mm -hmm. years plus um, and obviously you'll see that change as the trees get bigger and the trees mature i think the sort of like looking at it year on year is actually quite interesting in itself though because then you can see what's making that change happen and those two years where the ler were can't were, was calculated in the, in the willow system one was very dry um, and in the dry year the agroforestry system overall um, performed a lot better than the monocultures yeah. didn't it so you, you can sort of then start to pick out your interactions and where things are happening in a positive or a negative way. So it gives you, rather than just being a snapshot, having two years data gives you a little bit more information. But you're right, if you can have it over a longer period of time, and it was mm. modelled as well, wasn't it, uh, at um, Wakelands over a longer period. Um, and again, you had a positive LER then, but it was based on the biomass of the systems as well. Yeah. But do you, from the different um, farms that you've seen and studied, do you still do you still see a real opportunity in terms of increased productivity? Um, you know, obviously, as you said, it depends how you define productivity. But uh, kind of going beyond the metric, do you think there's something interesting there, or do you think it's just not the right angle of looking at it? I think it's a really interesting question, and I think the the jury's out. I think systems like Stephen Briggs, um, where you've got that definite product, you've got the apples. Um, and you've got the, the arable crops as well. Um, that's it's an easier question to answer. Um, but some, I mean, and then some agroforestry systems are are just windbreaks. So um, if you've got a windbreak, you've got land out of production for the windbreak, and is that offset then by the increase in production? I don't. I don't think we necessarily know the answer to that yet. Um, but I, I guess agroforestry systems themselves are so varied, and whichever agroforestry system you you design you're taking a certain area out of production um so for the trees until the trees start to become productive um if if they are going to become productive in the end um, i guess that's one of the things that's motivated me is to try and um, make sure that those trees can be productive and can be seen as part of the farming system because there's already a lot of trees in, in the uk anyway not so much over in the east of the country in the arable um, big arable areas but certainly in the West, there's already a lot of trees on farms which aren't necessarily currently used as part of the productive farming system. So they're already there, but they're not being sort of inter integrated into the farming system. So if you can bring those trees into the farming system and then add on additional trees um, in a way that 
you're thinking about how you can maximize your production. I think that's the way to go about designing an agroforestry system um, because you, you do have additional benefits from the agroforestry system if you design it right. Um, but the actual overall production, I think to get to hit um, positive on that and to hit positive overall production is, is more tricky, I think. And it depends on what you're using your trees for. Yeah. And I guess it's such a good reminder that using big words like productivity doesn't mean anything. Like it's always in a context, depending on, you know, what are you trying to aim for? And I guess that's what's exciting as, as studies come out, then we'll just have a clear idea of the different possibilities. And then it's up to every farmer to really define what they're trying to achieve. But um, yeah, thanks for nuancing that again, like another claim, because we, we often hear the terms overyielding polycultures and stacking productions and all these things, but it definitely looks much more complex and, and less straightforward that you can, you can sometimes think. I think it's a really good point that, you know, that Sally made and um, quite a lot of our work at the Organic Research Centre was looking at, you know, in the UK, there are a lot of trees in, in the environment, whether it's woodlands, trees or hedges. And for many farmers, they're a, a burden, they're a cost, you know, to manage. And particularly to work on the hedges was looking at, okay, we know they do have benefits, you know, providing shelter and, and um, as a windbreak, good for biodiversity, but actually it's a cost for the farmer to manage them year on year. They can't remove them, they're, you know, they're prevented, um, they're prevented from removing them by law. So actually, can we make them a positive part of the farm system? Um, and manage them to to give a product and i mean we were looking at them for for wood chip and um, for producing wood chip and we did some work um, on our farm in newbury comparing different different management techniques and um the, you know, the financial elements of of doing that um yeah and then if you couldn't i mean because we also planted additional hedges at elm farm um, with the intention of then managing them for biofuel because the species mix in traditional hedges um, in the UK is quite often um, not optimal for biomass production. You've got sort of thorn species, which are, um, are slower growing and mesh together a bit, bit more um, and are harder to manage um, on coppice cycles. Um, and I think then if you can combine that, that sort of need for your biomass um, on your farm um, with some planting of, of um, agroforestry rows or new hedgerows um, for the production of that biomass um, and also for um, other purposes as well. Um, so, for example, for windbreaks, um, then, then you're looking at a system that stacks, sort of sits together as a whole um, or for um, other wood chip production for other purposes as well. So for ramiel wood chip production, and that's certainly something that we're looking at at the moment on the market garden that I'm working at. Um, we're planting trees with the intention of coppicing them um, for wood chip production. What's changing or what kind of new ideas or new management techniques are coming forward to enable farmers to use these existing trees then? Because I'm assuming that if they weren't doing so is that there's obvious uh, practical uh, challenges in, in terms of, of doing it in a time efficient manner. And are there new approaches to, to hedges that enable using that biomass in a cost effective way? I think it's it's partly um, a need for new and more efficient methods, but it's also partly a, a mindset change as well. Um, uh, so seeing them as a resource rather than, as Joe mentioned, seeing them as something that is, is sort of a, a bit of a pain and you have to manage. Um, so starting to, to change your mindset to seeing that those um, hedgerows as potentially 
a resource for your farm. Um, and then I think coupled with that, there is some uh, logistical challenges as well, particularly where there's wire in the hedge and that has to be cut out and, and you haven't got good access as well, I think, for management. Uh, but they can be overcome. I think we, we did various machinery trials looking at different methods for management of, of hedgerows um, using, by coppicing using sort of different scales. And I think all of those logistical challenges can be overcome. And, and if you've got a, a ready market or you can use the wood chip yourself, um, then the economics can stack up. But it is that sort of mindset change, I think. Yeah. Some of it's having access to the machinery, um, wasn't it, Sally? And, you know, all the machinery exists yeah. and it's there. It's just, um, yeah, sometimes having access to it. So kind of more forestry specific um, machinery was the, the, the kind of biggest issue in terms of haulage, getting it to the right site. But then there's a scale in between, which um, is more kind of farm scale. Um, got a nice example of um, a contractor up who used to work with Martin, who had tree shears that weren't so expensive. And it was kind of more of a farm scale rather than a forest scale um, piece of kit. And, you know, the economics stacked up for that as well. So it's kind of getting the appropriate scale um, for the farm. Yeah, I think Wakelands was always a good example as well. I always used Wakelands as an example when talking to farmers about um, uh, how they, they they had these sort of um, barriers to managing, so barriers to, to uh, managing their hedges or, or cutting their trees down because Wakelands did everything on really quite a small scale and managed to make it work. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think they just had a sort of hand-fed chipper. Um, they probably still do. Um, which they chipped all, all the material in, stacked it up and, and put a couple of side a day or two to, to feed it through the chipper. And yeah, like Joe said, there was a, the guy with the tree shears on hand who um, I think has been doing some work with them recently as well. Um, or they, they've got a tractor as mounted circular saw as well, which they use for management. So they, they, there are ways to get around these management issues. And yeah, if you've got lots, lots of hedge, it is worth, or lots of trees to cut, it is worth getting in um, bigger kit and, bigger machinery but it doesn't have to be that way yeah um tolly managed his hedges as well um and his trees on farm just using a local chain a, a local tree surgeon i guess there's the opportunity also for farmers to work together isn't there and you know so if you're if you're getting in a big piece of kit it's like working with the neighbors to give it enough hedge or or trees to to keep it busy um, so working together yeah yeah and i'm wondering um since you you know, well, you've had experience uh, studying hedges. Um, does the state of research now enable um, enable us to kind of uh, claim that uh, hedges really bring environmental or ecosystem services to the production? Or do you still think you need to be able to defend them from like a production angle for, it to, for them to be um, valued by farmers? I think that's a that's a really good question um, because there's actually a lot more research on hedges than there is on agroforestry and you can almost use them as a proxy for agroforestry systems um, and there's um, a, quite a lot of evidence on the ecosystem service provision of hedgerows from various different um, various different ecosystem services from water management to um, sort of providing a habitat for biodiversity beneficial biodiversity on the farm um, through to um, sort of crop protection, wind protection um, for livestock as well. There's there's a whole wealth of research out there that, that basically demonstrates that hedges are a good thing. But I think despite that, not all farmers 
kind of see the benefits of that. So particularly over in the arable east um, where Wakelands is, you know, farmers can't remove the hedges, but they're keeping them as small as they possibly can. So they're basically cutting them right back. So they're only like a meter square box. Um, so they're not delivering those biodiversity benefits um, or the other benefits because they're just these little, this little kind of linear feature. Um, so I think despite recognition of the ecosystem services that hedges provide, there's still a case for um, you know, building in the productivity angle as well. And actually, you know, if we're talking about homegrown energy, surely that is perhaps something we should be looking at anyway. Um, and we're not proposing really that farmers would manage all of their hedges on the farm in that way. And it's more about kind of creating a mosaic of, of different stages of regrowth and different types of hedges. You know, some hedges might be laid instead of coppiced and others would be kind of more traditionally managed um, as, as a hedgerow. Um, and so, it, you know, in, in a way it could be seen as a, um, a means to enhancing biodiversity because you've got these different types of hedge habitats. So it's not just kind of one type of hedge. You've got different um, different characters in the different hedge regrowth stages. Um, Sally, since you, you say that there's, you know, so much more research on hedges, um, could you tell us briefly what are the most well-established or documented benefits that uh, hedges bring? Again, that depends where you are in the country. I mean, the first thing that popped into my head there was some of the work that's been done at Bangor University, um, looking at the uh, impacts of shelter. Um, so they've got, a, is, it, is it Bangor who has yeah. the electric sheep, Joe? Um, yeah, they've got a, an electric sheep with a sort of weather station in it that they've been moving around and putting next to hedges and out in the field. Um, and you can sort of see the benefits of, of the shelter on the welfare of the sheep um, and that sort of animal welfare then, then um, translates into um, increased um, live weight, I guess, is it? Or the birth of lambs, livestock's, yeah, food, <laughs> livestock's not my area, um, but it's, it's good for the sheep, basically. Okay. Uh, so that's the first thing that popped into my head, head. But then in other parts of the country, I think over, over in the East, you've got maybe sort of like watercourse management, um, sorry, um, and um, other benefits as well. Yeah, really interesting. I think for the the, the livestock, it seems pretty obvious. Again, maybe might depend on, on where you are, but even in the mountains area where I'm working at the moment uh, and the farmer I'm working with, he he's taken out like old walls to make bigger, um, you know, bigger fields. And he, he still is in that approach of trying to make uh, his work easier with his tractor. But on the other side, I was asking him like, well, why did you leave the hazelnuts? And he was like, yeah, that's absolutely crucial shelter for the, the, the animals. And he's definitely not taking out the trees because is such a high value for him. And, and on the higher altitudes where there were never really hedges, they're now starting to um, plant them for shelter for the animals in the heat waves. So even from a kind mm -hmm. of practical, experiential basis, um, I think there's, yeah, that's there's a clear benefit there. Yeah, and I think the benefit for biodiversity is, is obviously quite massive um, in agricultural areas as well. Um, no, not just as a resource, but also as a as a corridor, um, allowing animals to kind of move across agricultural areas and being able to you know, get from habitat to habitat, basically. But I assume that could be a challenge as well, because you know, if, for example, if you're uh, 
transforming your land into a deer uh, corridor, you know, that could also bring some challenges. I could see some farmers being maybe worried about that. Well, that's another opportunity. I mean, that was a nice thing at Wakelands. Um, so they had the Munchat deer at Wakelands, the little deer invasive. And um, yeah, it was a pest. And then Martin saw it as an opportunity, worked with a local gamekeeper um, who would come and shoot the deer and make them into pies and sausages and sell them in the local deli. Um, so, you know, we should perhaps, again, it comes down to mindset, but perhaps think about this as um, another product of agroforestry, yeah. another potential, um, another part of the kind of livestock system, maybe. But yes, you're right. I mean, there's, you know, there's agroforestry and kind of increasing trees in, in the landscape do bring with them potential pest problems. Um, I know uh, um, one of the problems Stephen Briggs had, and I'm sure he said about it, was having um, pigeons using his apple trees as, as posts and uh, yeah, he breaking did the apple us. trees. Yeah. Yeah. And at Wakelands, I mean, there were hair, hairs, um, but it was lovely to see the hairs. I mean, they're, you know, they're quite a rare um, species now. And um, the deer as well. Not so many squirrels. I mean, that's the other thing that um, people are concerned about when planting, particularly hazelnuts, is um, you know, increasing grey squirrel numbers, um, but there's never really a problem at Wakelands. No, but it's, I, I love the example you just gave about, you know, hunting the deer and making pies out of them. Like they're, they're a great, great example of, of using your, the problem and, and turning it into a solution. We kind of touched upon um, wood chips for, as fuel a bit, but I wanted to come back to wood chips in general, because I know, Sally, that you've been doing some research on wood chips um, at um, Tallhurst Organics, and I know how important wood chips are for um, for Tolly um, over there. And maybe you want to, you know, walk us through your experiments there and some of your findings. Yeah, so we um, we just sort of finished those trials at the end of um, last year. Um, it was over a three-year period, although we actually snuck in an extra year at Tolly's because we had a trial um, a trial trial there before we started the the bigger trial. Um, so we had four years worth of um, trials at Tollies. And then we also did a trial at, um, on the Ramy Woodchip at Wakelands as well, uh, which was really interesting. And it complemented um, the, the trial at Tollies quite well because we had the single species woodchip there from the um, short rotation coppice agroforestry systems. Um, and we also had a trial on a conventional arable farm, um, so nearby where he used um, woodchip from his, his hedgerows. So all of them were looking at using woodchip sourced from... Um, their on-farm resources um, and using it as a soil improver. Um, so as a, a sort of ramiel wood chip, which is a term that I think was um, coined in Canada a number of years ago, um, but it's sort of a smaller wood chip that that's, comes from the twigs and the, and the smaller diameter material. So it's exactly the opposite of what you need for a good fuel, which is, I guess, one of the things that interested me straight away was when, you're, when I was early on, um, start, first started at Organic Research Centre and looking at wood chip for um, fuel from hedgerows, the thing that everybody says to you is, oh, no, you can't use it from hedgerows. You've got too much bark. The material's too, too the diameter's too small. You'll have too much bark in it. And for ramio wood chip, that's exactly what you want. You want the high bark, the high um, bud ratio, because this um, this material breaks down faster and it's, it's um, more nutritionally dense as well. Um, so it's sort of where the active part of the tree is, I guess. Um, so we cut this material from, from the on-farm sources and, and applied it um, to the soil. So it's a way of um, 
closing the fertility loop on farms and, and looking at becoming less reliant on external inputs. Um, while also, I think the nice thing is, is the trees have got deeper roots as well than, um, than your annual crop. So you're bringing some of that nutrients back up into the tree. And then instead of the leaves just falling underneath the tree, with, with the wood chip, if you then spread it onto the soil, you're, you're moving some of that fertility back out into the field as well. Um, so again, moving the trees out into the tree fertility out into the field. Um, but there's a lot, there was a lot of scepticism about whether you can put wood chip on annual, annual sort of cropping areas and whether that you will get nitrogen lockup in particular. Um, also, the feasibility around it was something that um, we looked at quite closely in the trials, because I think at the Organic Research Centre, one of the sort of really nice things about a lot of the research that I was involved in when I was there, and I think the organisation as a whole focuses on, is making sure that, that what we're doing is actually practically feasible and works as well for the farmers. Um, yeah, so we, we measured all sorts of different things with the farmers with this wood chip. We put it on every year. Um, we added a, 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 another trial, so we had different phases of the rotation. So at Tollies, we had wood chip um, over four years in four different locations, um, which was great. So we could see um, the sort of impact with the early trial of that wood chip a few years on and a few years um, down the road as well. So after a few crops had been planted. Um, so we monitored the crop health, we monitored the soil um, health as well, um, and the soil nutrients over the, over the four year period. Um, and I guess one of the, the headlines is we didn't really find any negative impacts. We half expected to see sort of nitrogen lock up and, and certainly the crop in the first year following wood chip to see some sort of um, impacts on the on the crop health of the wood chip um, with potentially then following years and when you look to the, the literature which is quite limited on on other trials you did see the sort of dip um, where the wood chip in the first year is maybe locking up a bit of nitrogen and, and then as it breaks down you haven't got that and I, I think maybe we were a bit cautious because we the, the trials were on farm so um and they were on commercial farms we didn't have a sort of trial field that we were doing it on it had to fit in so um at tollies and wakelands the um wood chip went on to a legume lay um so you've got that sort of legume nitrogen fixing legumes um maybe offsetting some of the um nitrogen lockup if there was any with the wood chip but we didn't see any nitrogen lockup really any evidence of it at all um three years on at tollies we saw a slight maybe on the cabbages on the brassicas a slight sort of dip in the growth in the early growth but then we, we followed them through to harvest and we saw um, no negative effect on, on, on that at all as well. And there was even some signs that there may be a positive effect on yield as well, although the, the, the data wasn't significant enough to sort of say, yes, definitely, Ramia wood chip definitely gives you an increase in yield. There was um, some signs that it may have been positive um, and some signs as well that the, um, the impacts on pest and disease um, of the wood chip may have been uh, positive in some aspects as well. The marketable yield of potatoes over two years of the trial at Tollies um, were higher in, in the Ramia wood chip um, than in the other plots. And just to understand the, the trials of it, um, so the wood chips are yeah. just kind of spread on the soil surface. Um, at what kind of volume and, and what time um, of the year? So we spread them in the winter um, when the sort of so you want to cut the material and spread it as soon as possible after cutting so it's fresh um, and cut it with the leaves off because 
with the leaves on the tree, um, the balance when it breaks down is slightly different and it's more bacterially rather than fungally dominated. Um, the wood chip is when it breaks, it breaks down. So we spread in winter, which um, creates some problems when you've got wet ground. I mean, particularly at Wakelands, it was a very wet year one year. Um, so finding that window to spread was quite tricky. Um, the the um, rates we ver were varied. Um, so for the application rates, um, we tried to match the application rate that they were the farms were using um, with compost. Um, so Tolly was using sort of 60 cubic meters um, of compost, 60 cubic meters per hectare of compost. So we used the same amount of wood chip. But to a certain extent, the application rates were determined by the amount of material we had available as well. So again, it's sort of taking a practical point of view. We worked with the farmer to look at what area we had for the trial and how we could set it up so that we had enough replicates to get good data and then what area we had there and then how much material we had to coppice and how we could match that to the application rates. Um, so there was a bit of variability um, and we did it. It was about 60 at Wakelands. At the um, arable farm, he used a lot of green waste compost and he also had quite a lot of um, a large mature hedge that he wanted to, to use and chip for the trial. So um, the application rate there was quite a lot higher. And that made me quite nervous because he wasn't putting it onto a legume lay as well. Um, and he was putting a higher application rate on just prior to a spring crop and then putting a spring crop um, in sort of a month or two after. Um, and I was sort of thinking, oh, my God, the um, nitrogen lock up. <laughs> um, but actually, because he was conventional, he was putting nitrogen on as well. So I guess you, you offset that potential nitrogen lock up with a, an application of um, mineral nitrogen. Um, and then at Wakelands, we had that flexibility with the... Um, with the um, different coppice species, because there's so many trees there that the application rate, it wasn't such a problem. Um, and we'd started with quite a low application rate. And the first year of monitoring, we didn't really see any difference between the treatment. And Martin came out and said, right, next year, let's double the application rate and reapply it. Um, and he made our experimental design very complex up there, um, which I cursed him for when I was analyzing the data. Um, but it was actually quite interesting because we had that, um, that sort of double application with a higher rate, uh, which did sort of push the system a little bit into, into showing us some, some um, differences. And we definitely saw a sort of jump up in soil organic matter, um, which I mean, we didn't see in the other um, lower application rates, even, even actually at, um, at Down Farm. Um, so the farm, the conventional farm, yeah. we didn't see that, but we did where we reapplied it at Wakelands, we saw that difference. Um, and yes, yeah, so, soil health we monitored as well. So we looked at, um, we looked at different elements of soil health. We looked at um, soil respiration. We looked at the, um, the different the sort of key nutrients as well. Um, and then we, we counted a lot of worms. Joe helped count worms as well. Joe, Joe's um, a worm expert. So we did a, an actual two species survey of worms as well. And we found an insane amount of worms at Tollies. Um, high numbers of worms at all three sites, but a, an awful lot of Tollies. Okay. And sort of a, a slight sort of differentiation in species as well between the treatments. That, the species overall, I think, were, were not not particularly spectacular. They were mainly your common types, but there was a slight, um, slightly different um, species set that we found in the sort of compost treated rather than the ramia wood chip treated um, sites. And I think my, my overall conclusion is that the, the compost, uh, the ramia wood chip, doesn't necessarily replace the compost. It has a slightly different action, and I think potentially you want to use both of them in um, in um, 
what's the word I'm looking for? Together, basically. Um, but maybe one 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 cycle of compost, then a few years later, a cycle of ramu wood chips. So you've got these sort of different actions on the soil that both of them are producing. For the application and the compost rates, you were comparing um, we to was to composted which, uh, ramu wood chips, or was it just co bought-in compost? It was no, it was, it was compost um, composted wood chip at, at Tolly's, which is the the um, material that he uses. It was green waste compost at the um, conventional arable. Um, which he produces on site. He's got a green waste composting plant on site. So um, that was there. And then at Wakelands, actually, we didn't have a compost treatment. We just compared the different species of wood chip against okay. each other. Um, we included a sort of mixed hedge there as well. Um, and when you look at the, when we did a, a sort of analysis of the um, chemical composition of the substrate, the compost or the wood chip, before we applied it as well, and the different species of wood chips had really quite big differences between the um, uh, nutrient that was available in them but this didn't sort of carry through into the soil um, but maybe it would after a number of years. Okay. Um, willow in particular was quite low overall in nutrients compared to some of the other species uh, which is quite interesting because in a way willow is one of the species that's maybe best suited for ramia wood chip production as well because it's fast growing and um, you can coppice it quite easily um, so you can sort of fit it into your system and um, as a veg grower it's certainly one of the, the species that we're thinking about using but then the nutrients in it is lower but that's probably matched by the, the fast growing nature of the tree as well but then you would would the ideal be having a, a variety a mix of of different tree uh, species to to try and have a balanced um, input of nutrients or do you think it's not that important um, I would instinctively say yes. Um, I don't think the results of this trial necessarily back up that, but that's my instinct. Yeah. Um, and I think with more um, years of research, you would perhaps see like the results because these sort of soil, it, it, it changes quite slowly over time and, and wood chip as well. The action of wood chip on soil, I think is, is quite um, a long-term process for it, to, for it to sort of break down and fully realize. Um, its action so yeah I think I would instinctively say yes a mixture would be better but then that's probably partly the fact that I'm totally sold on the idea that diversity is important yeah. as well I, I just wanted to say as well that the three farms I suppose as well that we used in the study all had even even the conventional arable because he was using quite high amounts of green waste compost on a regular basis all had very high existing levels of sort of soil um biology and soil health um, so it'd be quite interesting to try um, the same technique on a more degraded soil I think um, you may see more spectacular results on a degraded soil yeah that's that's very interesting because just to understand properly you're saying that on the two farms that used uh, compost you didn't really see a difference between gramule um, wood chips and then compost in terms of plant reaction that they were pretty equal is that kind of what you said yeah they were pretty okay. equal we saw some fairly subtle subtle differences but yeah not a huge amount um there was increased phosphorus overall um with the ramia wood chip um and there was some differences again i think in in the potato um crop at tollies we saw a difference in marketable yield so the the ramia wood chip had had lower slug damage um, than the compost okay um which surprised me actually i wasn't expecting to find that but we did see this sort of lower um 
instance of slug damage in the Ramia wood chip, and that was on both years as well. So it's two years data in two different fields. So I think there's a little bit more certainty that that was actually a trend. Mm -hmm. I guess it'd be interesting to to be able to compare as well uh, how energy intensive and time consuming the two inputs are, uh, because it's true that Ramia wood chips, you know, instinctively you kind of think, well, it's great that you're able to almost equal the results of compost with um, like uh, something that's, you know, if you have planted trees and you can have like on, on-site input production. But then uh, I don't know how it would compare once you take into account the, the chipping, etc. because both seem to be, you know, quite labor-intensive inputs, but it'd be interesting to have that comparison. Um, I think we did, we did try and get our heads around that comparison. Yeah. Um, that was something I was definitely interested in. And I think um, on a purely financial basis, you wouldn't just produce Ramia wood yeah. chip um, as opposed to compost. But then when you tie it into the fact that you need to manage your trees on site anyway, yeah. um, and if you want to reduce your um, input, your reliance on external inputs. So if you're producing um, material on site to compost, then you've got to go through that process anyway. Um, whereas if you're relying on sort of external um, deliveries of material that you either compost yourself or external deliveries of ready-made compost, um, then that, in at the moment, I think is is more um, economically viable. Um, but I think there's going to be a future where um, maybe there's going to be more value um, attributed to green waste compost and to wood chip, um, and becoming reliant, uh, becoming sort of self um, reliance is is maybe mm. a good goal as well. Um, sure. For my own interest, is Tolly still using Ramil wood chips? Ali, will he carry on to use it? I think he will. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm sort of, yeah. I'm. Ho- I hope he will. I think he's. Mm. I think he's quite yeah. sold on it though, um, and I think he's also um, inspired other people. I mean, we're certainly planning to try using it, and I've spoken to various other growers as well. It fits quite nicely. That's the thing. If you can get your sort of like windbreak, short rotation coppice rows, and you can not move the material too far, so you can be um, basically having your wood chip production. Um, very close to your your vegetable production and I think um, and you tie it in with your rotation so that's your lay phase then I think it can work very nicely as a system and I think Tolly will carry on using it he's, he's a wood chip addict He'll carry <laughs> <on>. <laughs> um, yeah so I think the the last question I wanted to ask both of you um, because you you have that kind of more global vision you've you've done trials on different farms and you know Sally you're, you're working on a farm as well uh, and, and you have experience with agroforestry. Um, for you, you know what what kind of has to change for agroforestry to scale up, or what are, what is the main challenge? Is it you know a change in mentality? Is it more technical uh, solutions that have to be developed? You know where where do you see the kind of main thing main blockades to be lifted for us to scale up agroforestry? Um, I think it is the mentality um, question really and you know we've been involved for 10 years or so and in the early early years people didn't know the word they didn't know agroforestry they didn't understand it and um, you just had a few pioneering pioneering farmers like Stephen Briggs and, and Martin and taking it forward um, but it is that kind of peer-to-peer sharing of the experience that I think we've seen it grow over the last 10 years and it, you know it's it's now definitely more widely understood and widely known in the UK and more people are doing it so bit by bit it is increasing we are hearing about all these systems that are being planted um, or people using their resources on farm uh, in a different way 
Um, so I think it is that change of mentality of trees aren't a bad thing to have on the farm and recognising the benefits and perhaps going that step to making them a productive part of the farm is, um, is the way forward. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's, you know, in terms of support, farm support, um, agroforestry has suffered from kind of falling through the gaps of not being agriculture and not being forestry and being some kind of weird combination of the two. And, you know, classically, that if not, you know, if you've got too many trees, you lose kind of eligibility for, for your farm payments. Um, I think we're seeing greater recognition from policymakers that, you know, agroforestry provides a way of storing carbon and, you know, improving the environment whilst maintaining agricultural productivity as well. And so it should be something that, that is supported, even if it is complicated. Um, and I think in the UK and at the European level, you know, there's greater support for agroforestry amongst policymakers as well. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd, I'd agree with all of that. I'd, I'd maybe only add the, the need for advice as well. I think we come, a, come across a lot of farmers who are quite keen to do it, but want that just that little bit of help. Um, because it's quite complex and there are lots of different options out there about where you plant them and also when you put a tree in the ground it's, it's not like an annual crop where you can change it next year um, that tree will be there for a, a significant length of time so I think it's sort of getting over that hurdle and that step of planting the trees is, is a, a mindset thing but also the need for advice and sort of that peer-to-peer -peer learning as well so exactly like this podcast basically um, getting getting people to um, to listen to the experience of the other farmers um, and hear the other and see them as well. Yeah, and having a bit of support for getting the trees planted. So um, the Woodland Trust in the UK have been really successful um, working with farmers, help, helping them design their, their scheme, um, their agroforestry systems and, and giving support for the trees. So paying for the trees, paying, paying for the, um, the protection of the trees as well. So I think just having you know a little bit of, of money input at that early stage um, to support the tree planting has been you know hugely beneficial as well as the advice that they've been given giving to the farmers. Well, yeah, thank you so much for um, for all this information. It's been really fascinating for me to get a bit a bit of a different uh, perspective on these questions because so far we've mainly talk to farmers um, and organizations, and we haven't had the chance to talk to researchers. So yeah, thank you so much. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. And um, yeah, maybe uh, we'll have you another time on the podcast then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. It's been, been fun. <laughs> yeah, thanks very much. It's been nice talking to you. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Some of you have been getting in touch with us with some ideas and feedback, and we really appreciate that. And we'll do our best to try and include it in uh, upcoming interviews with our guests. Um, if you'd like to get in touch with us as well, you can do so on social media or our website. As usual, we'll have included all the relevant links uh, down below in the description.